Well, once again, let me take this, this opportunity to invite us one more time for our time of um, hearing God's word and just fellowshipping amongst ourselves this morning. Please receive greetings from Pastor Minor. Um, he conveyed his greetings to all of us. Do we receive them? I hope you remember that um, every so often when you read the letters that Paul writes, there's almost that ending. He says, greet the brethren. And I want to believe that probably it is in the same light that he shares his greetings with us this morning. Our meetings for the week continue tomorrow, God willing. We have our time of prayer. Um, on Thursday, we have a Bible study. Even as we reflect on the very same things that pastor is teaching in Nakuru today, and so let us all be encouraged to go through the lesson and even to do the study questions. And if the Lord is willing that we can converge on Thursday evening. On Saturday, we have our prayer meeting like we did yesterday. Let me also invite all of us to continue to join up in our weekly meetings. I am sure that we are aware that the conference is fast approaching. Next month, God willing, uh, Pastor John and the team will be here. And so let's continue to pray to that end. I'd like us therefore to turn to our lesson for today. We now move to part number seven of this series. He opened the scriptures and I will read our head scripture from Luke chapter number 24 and verse 32. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And so by taking just a few minutes to recap what we did two weeks ago, we did see that these two disciples reported to the rest that it was in the breaking of bread that Christ was known to them. We know that they had not known Jesus when he joined them on their journey, if we were to read verse 16 of Luke 24. And when Jesus took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave the disciples. And we did conclude that they must have eaten for them to come to that place of knowing him, as we would read in verse 30 of Luke 24. And going back to the children of Israel, we had studied that in their pilgrimage, they made a complaint against Moses and Aaron. But more specifically, this was a complaint against God. And the object of their complaint was twofold. It was hunger and thirst. Interesting for this, um, you know, first generation of the Israelites to complain against God because of two things, food and water, so to speak. And in both instances, we see God responding by providing bread and water. The only two elements, or rather that were perfect and were uh, typifying Christ. You see, God in his wisdom knew that what these children of Israel needed was only bread and water. There was no snack. There was nothing else to add. If there was, then God would have supplied it. And the responsibility that the children of Israel had was to gather and eat the bread. That was their responsibility. God had made provision for them, but it was up to them to go out and collect it, to glean and to eat it. With the time we did see, however, that they became discontent with the manna, the bread, 
resulting in their making alterations. They modified it so that it may suit their taste. And by so doing, they were no longer eating the perfect provision of God. And is it any wonder that God was not pleased with most of them as this most of them died in the wilderness, never reaching the land of promise, as Paul would give a commentary in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, that out of this first generation, only Caleb and Joshua and those below 20 years would enter the land of promise. These are the ones that God would sustain 40 years with bread and water in the wilderness, the same wilderness that the majority perished. And I submit to us that even for us this morning, God will sustain us in our pilgrim journey with bread and water that we may enter the land of promise, that heavenly inheritance. And therefore we concluded by saying that our eating of the living bread finds its best expression in our assimilating it in our lives on a daily basis such that it transforms us as we make the choices to organize our lives in faithful obedience to that which God has revealed to us in his word that is rightly divided. So let us proceed from there and consider the same journey that we have been looking at of these two disciples because a time came when they invited Jesus to abide with them. But let us go back and read Luke 24 verse 13 by way of reminder. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And we have seen thus far that these two disciples traveling to Emmaus on the same day that Jesus resurrected was that very same day that he joined them on their journey. But as we have said, they did not know him at the time. Verse 15 and 16 of Luke 24 remind us, So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And taking him for a stranger, they narrated to him recent happenings, and these happenings concerned Christ himself, but they did not know that he was the one. And if you were to just dig deeper into the recent happenings, we are almost at that time where the world over is celebrating Palm Sunday. And it is interesting that these are the very same things that these two disciples were talking about. And they expressed their hope regarding the Christ based on the Old Testament scriptures which they had in their possession. But they had not come to a place of understanding. And Jesus must have seen that these two disciples had gaps as far as understanding their own scriptures is concerned. But what did he do? He began to teach them using those very same scriptures. And he began at a very specific point, and that is at Moses, the Old Testament, the five books written by Moses. And it is in this process that is also pictured later in Jesus breaking bread and giving them that he rightly divided the scriptures. And the end result was that their eyes were opened and they knew him. As with every journey which has a starting point and a terminal point, 
the two disciples had traveled from Jerusalem, and by now they are approaching Emmaus. In Luke 24, 28, then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. When I read this the first time, I wondered, what does it mean that he indicated that he would have gone further? If you compare this same verse in the NASB, this is how it is rendered. And they approached the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. Jesus gave the impression that he would go farther, and that must have been beyond this village that these two disciples were going. All this while, we know that Jesus had been expounding to them from all the scriptures things concerning himself, and that we read in verse 27. This was the body of their conversation, which had lasted seven miles, and now they are approaching their destination. You know, I wonder what would happen if this was to happen in our time today. I wonder whether Jesus would be talking about now the famous Monday Mandamano for that matter. Would he be talking about the cost of living? I wonder. Would he be talking about the rains? I wonder. But we know for a fact that the conversation that Jesus had with these two disciples had nothing to do with any other matter. It was about the scriptures. And I asked the three questions to us this morning. Having indicated that he would have gone further, would he really have gone further? Was this a test on these two disciples with Jesus seeking to establish if they wanted to hear more or they were content with what he had taught them already? Was this the time for the two disciples to bid him farewell now that they had reached their terminal point? And I'm sure we have an answer already, but let's continue with the lesson. Certainly, I submit to us that Jesus knew that he would be with them. Why do we say this? Because God is not random. In the feeding of the 5,000, we find that Jesus asked Philip a question. But this was a question to test him. Reading John 6, verse 5 to 6, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. And if I look at this, and if we look at this particular passage that Jesus knew what he would do, I submit that in equal measure, he knew that he would spend the time with these two disciples. And seeing this, the two disciples constrained him to abide with them. Reading Luke 24, 29. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is fast spent. And he went in to stay with them. Jesus staying with them was not by virtue of luck. It was purposeful. And the Greek word for constrained means to force contrary to nature. It is to compel by entreaty. It is to press and figuratively to urge strongly, to coerce, to persuade to speak in such a way as to encourage a particular type of behavior or action. The NASB renders it this way, and so they strongly urged him. 
I find that this must have been an intentional action on the part of these two disciples. They didn't want him to go. And so even as they tell him, abide with us, I hope that we can find that there was a sense of, you know, desire on their part for him to be with them. They compelled him. After all, he had indicated that he would have gone further. And the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament is in the book of Acts, which was also written by Dr. Luke, reading Acts 16, verse 14 to 15, the King James Version. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized, and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be, the, to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. The very same action that these two disciples did. And is it not interesting that of this lady, the Lord had also opened her heart. As much as we are seeing the Lord opening the scriptures to these two disciples and their eyes by extension. And she does almost the same thing that these two disciples did. Come into my house and abide there. And the disciples tell Jesus, abide with us. And they constrained him. The Greek word for abide is a word that means to stay, to continue, to dwell, to remain. It is to tarry. But let us take note that by this time, they had not yet known that he is Jesus. To them, he was still a stranger. This must lead us to ask this question. Why were they willing to host a stranger? Was it merely because the night was beckoning? Or did they desire to hear more from the scriptures? And in answering these two questions, let us go to John chapter number 4, where we find the Samaritans. Having heard the testimony of the Samaritan woman, they went to him, that is to Christ, and they urged him to stay with them, presumably because of what he must have taught them from the scriptures, at the end of which they acknowledged him to be the Christ. I wonder if it would be possible for anyone to acknowledge Jesus to be the Christ apart from the teaching of the scriptures. And so reading a portion of John 4, verse 40 to 42. So when the Samaritans had come to him, that is to Christ, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed, this indeed, this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. As a result of what they had heard from him, they had come to that conclusion that this is the Christ, and that is why they had urged him. And I almost see a pattern with these two disciples as well. It must have had everything to do with what he was teaching them from the scriptures. Within our own context, let us remember the following. That Jesus is the word made flesh. Reading John 1.1 1, 1 and skipping to verse 14, part A. In beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became 
flesh. This word, of course, we know is Jesus the Christ. In Revelation 19.13, the second part of it, his name is called the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. That is his name. And therefore, dear friends, as we study the scriptures rightly divided, either on our own or within a corporate setting as we are this morning with like-minded brethren in the local assembly, we can see this as a picture of Jesus Christ being in our midst. That first church in Acts chapter number 2 is described as follows in verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Christ was in their midst. Just as much as he's in our midst when we set up that quality time to study the scriptures, God among the Israelites in his mercy made provision of bread and water, which we have seen typify Christ for them in their pilgrimage towards the land of promise. And likewise for us this morning, he has provided us his word, a type of Christ, so to speak, to navigate us towards the land of our promise. That prayer that we, uh, that verse that we read last night after prayer in Acts 20 verse 32, this is what Paul would write to the eldership of Ephesus when he has a meeting with them in Miletus. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And this word Paul says, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is these scriptures that we have, typifying Christ in our midst that are able to give us an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, being reminded again that all scripture contains the very breath of God. But you know, dear friends, be that as it may, with all the supply that God has made of his um, word to us, he does not impose his word on any one of us. He allows each one of us who desires to participate in the coming kingdom to make the choice to hear him on a consistent basis, that which is spoken through his spirit, through his word. And that is why this phrase is repeated a number of times in the book of Revelation. The, the, the passage that says in verse 7 of Revelation 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, this phrase is repeated. It is also repeated in Mark 4, 9 and Luke 8, verse 8. And I'm sure that this is not a random uh, phrase for God to bring by way of reminder to us this morning that it, the invitation is there for all of us who have this desire to participate in his coming kingdom, to hear him on a consistent basis. In the natural, we are likely to keep tasty things in the mouth much longer than bitter ones. I think if we were to remember, if we were to be given every so often when we are given medication and it is bitter, I wonder that we would want it to be in our mouth longer. We would want to dispense with it as fast as we can. Not so much if it was a bit sweet. And we keep going back to that which is sweet or tasty. Why? Because we treasure them. Likewise with the spiritual. God's word embodied in Jesus Christ is sweet. How do we know this? Because the psalmist in chapter 19, verse 9 to 10, 
would remind us again this morning that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. He repeats almost the same thing in Psalm 119 and verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Dear friends, if the word of God is sweet, but we don't find it to be sweet, it cannot be that it is a word that has a fault. It can only be that our taste buds need to be adjusted. And therefore, dear friends, I pray that even as we would continue to reflect on these two disciples and the invitation that they give to Jesus, it must have been that they found his words to be sweet. Is this true of us today, even today? The Lord humbled the Israelites, allowing them to come to a place of hunger. And when they did, he did not feed them with anything. He fed them with manna. And this is what Moses tells the second generation in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And I'm sure that tense lives is instructive for us. Present continues. With all this, we may come to this conclusion that as a result of the teaching that Jesus had done from the scriptures, although he was a stranger to them, the appetite of these two disciples had been spiked up, and they therefore desired more, confirming that which Christ had taught in the Sermon on the, on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 6, the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In our present dispensation, Christ is standing at the door, and he is knocking, and any believer who hears his voice and opens the door will dine with him, as we know from Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. I wonder whether in this passage in Luke 24, as Jesus walks with his two disciples, was a knock being placed on the hearts of these two individuals. And having invited him to abide with them, we find that Jesus sat at the table with them. He took bread, he blessed it, and he gave it to them. And scripture tells us their eyes were opened. Now it came to pass in Luke 24, 30, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they later report that it was in this that they knew him. They had constrained him to abide with them, and he did. And this leaves us with a question. With their eyes now opened, was this the end of the road? After all, 
Jesus had vanished from their sight? Maybe not. We know now from John 6 that Jesus, he is the living bread. And if eaten, will cause any one of us to live forever, literally for the age to come. And this living bread is the flesh of Christ. His word. Reading Jesus' words in John 6, 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And as we invite Christ to abide with us like we have seen these two disciples, he also extends us an invitation to abide in him. And it is in our choice to eat his flesh and drink his blood on a consistent basis that we abide in him and he abides in us. Continuing in John 6, 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And abiding in him as a context, it is bearing fruit because now that the kingdom is on offer to the new nation, this is the nation that is bearing fruit. And therefore, if we are desirous to bear fruit, then we must abide in him. And Christ continues in John 15 verse 4 to 6, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Abiding in him is a choice. A choice that we make and is connected to his word. Having read verse 4 of John 15, Christ extends an invitation to us to abide in him and he in us. And you see, being the word made flesh, he will abide in us to the degree that we allow his word to abide in us. And therefore Christ abides us if we desire to, that we may allow his word, so to speak, to remain with us. And he continues in verse 7, that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And allowing the word of God to abide in us allows us to abide in both the Son and in the Father with the end in view. And this is what John repeats in his uh, first epistle, chapter number 2, verse 14, 24, and 28. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him, who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Therefore, let that abide in you, which you had from the beginning. If what you had from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence 
and not be ashamed before him at his coming. I hope this reminds us of Ruth because there was so much confidence in her when she appears at the threshing floor of Boaz. And abiding in him is abiding in his love that is seen in keeping his commandments, his word. Jesus continues in John 15 verse 9 to 10, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And in 1 John 3, 6 and 24, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That as we invite Jesus to abide with us, he also is extending an invitation to you and I this morning to abide in him, and we cannot abide in him apart from me abiding in the scriptures. Let us go back to the Old Testament and find types of individuals who made the choice to abide in him, and because of time, we shall only examine two, that is Rebecca and Ruth. We know that Abraham sent his oldest servant to search and procure a bride for his son Isaac, and the servant obliged, and having identified Rebecca, it was decision time, a time to return because he had accomplished his mission, but we all know that her family was not willing to release her. Reading Genesis 24, verse 54 to 56. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, so that I may go to my master. If we were to read this in the King James Version, verse 55 would tell us, Let the young woman abide with us. And therefore, Rebecca has to make a choice. Will she abide with her family? Or will she follow the man? Rebecca had to make that choice. And we all know that she chose the latter. Because in Genesis 24, verse 57 to 58, the family said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. If we were to rephrase this question, maybe we would read something like this. Will you abide with us or with this man? And in answer, Rebecca would say, I will abide with this man. By following the man, Rebecca pictures a believer who abides in God's word because we know that the servant here is a type of the Holy Spirit. Then Rebecca and her maids arose and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and departed. 
And we know that Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 6 tells them that the words that he speaks are spirit and they are life. And we know from 2 Timothy 3.16 that God's word is full of his spirit. And therefore following this man, following the leading of the spirit, abiding in the spirit is abiding in the word. And her following the servant had an end in view, becoming the wife of Isaac. And reading verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Rebekah had made the choice to abide in the servant by following. And that is not any different for us even this morning, that we can only be seen to abiding in the Lord by following what the Lord is telling us through his word, by his spirit. The second person is Ruth. After the death of Elimelech and his two sons, Naomi was left with her, with her two daughters-in-law, that is Orpah and Ruth. And this we find in Ruth 1 verse 5, Then both Mahlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. And sooner rather than later, Naomi and her daughters-in-law embarked on a journey to Bethlehem. Initially, they both expressed willingness to make the journey with her. In verse 10 of Ruth 1, And they said to her, Surely we will, we will return with you to your people. But you see, dear friends, every resolve that we make must be tested. And the time of testing came for these two daughters-in-law. And therefore, in verse 11 to 13, we find the test. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And that decision time came yet again. By this time we know that both Orpah and Ruth knew what was at stake as far as the journey beforehand was concerned. It had to do with finding a husband. In fact, in verse 8 and 9, Naomi had told them expressly that they may find rest in the house of their husbands. And at this juncture, that resolve that was made in uh, verse 10, where both said, surely we'll return with you to your people. Having been tested, there was a separation. Orpah separated from Naomi and Ruth. Or shall we say that Orpah left her first love? In Ruth 1 verse 14 to 15, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth is put to the test one more time. What will she choose? Ruth made a choice. And this choice was to go with Naomi. And therefore, reading verse 16 to 18, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, 
Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death hurts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Interesting for us to know that Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her. I thought to myself that it would have been rendered when Naomi heard that she was determined. But scripture says that she saw her determination was evident. I wonder, is our determination evident to the Lord as well, like it was for Ruth? And with this determination, Naomi did not speak to her. And Naomi, we know, is a picture of both Israel and the scriptures. Orpah and Ruth are a picture of an unfaithful and faithful believers, respectively. And by choosing to go back, Orpah made the choice not to abide in Naomi. And thus pictures an unfaithful believer who chooses not to abide in Christ. By choosing to go with Naomi, Ruth chose to abide in her, and thus a picture of a faithful believer who chooses to abide in Christ. If we were to read Ruth chapter number 2 verse 23, we would find this, speaking of Ruth, so she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And scripture tells us she dwelt with her mother-in-law. And the Hebrew word for dwelt is a word that means to sit down. It means to remain. It means to abide, to continue, to remain, to tarry. The same word that we found in Genesis 24-55, uh, speaking of Rebecca, when she was asked whether she would remain, abide with the family, or follow the man. And therefore we have it here that Ruth dwelt with her mother-in-law. And we know that this is a picture of a Christian who chooses to continue, to remain and to tarry with the scriptures. And Ruth's choice to abide with Naomi afforded her fellowship with her. And it is no wonder that she received instructions from her as to the necessary preparations required to meet Boaz, a kinsman redeemer and a type of Christ with only one thing in view, that is security. Another word for rest. Reading Ruth chapter number 3, verse 1 to 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security, literally rest, for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you are with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And in response, Ruth not only expressed her willingness to do as told, but scripture bears witness that she went ahead 
to execute those very instructions. In verse 5 and 6 of Ruth chapter number 3. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Her faith was made perfect by her works. The scripture there should be uh, James chapter number 2 verse 14 to 26. You may want to correct that in your notes. It is James chapter 2 verse 14 to 26 and not 20 alone. And consequently, as a result of following the instructions that were given by Naomi, just as much as Rebecca had followed the man, Ruth also became the wife of Boaz in Ruth 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And dear friends, it is not in any way going to be any different for us that if we choose to follow, to abide in the Lord, following faithfully that which he instructs us, then on that day we shall equally be taken in as a bride of Christ, typified by both Isaac and Boaz. And coming to the end of our lesson, going back to John chapter number 6, we find Jesus teaching the Jews that he is the bread of life who came down from heaven. Reading John 6, 35 and 38, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was the response by the Jews? They complained, just as much as they had with the first generation in the hands of Moses. In verse 41 and 42, then the Jews complained about him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? For sure he was. He was Jesus. He was the son of Joseph. He and their father, I mean his father and mother, they knew. But you see, that is uh, having the letter. That is what having the letter and all the spirit of the scriptures would do. Then they ask this question. How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? I hope in this we can find that the Jews were blinded as much as they are even to death. Because the, the bread that Jesus was referring to was his flesh. And he continues in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, literally for the age. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Response number two, having heard this, they quarreled. In verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Not only had they complained in verse 41, but now they have quarreled among themselves. And then Jesus explicitly invited them to abide in him in verse 56 of John 6. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It sounded to me that this was the straw that broke the camel's back because as a result of having heard what Jesus had said, many of his disciples concluded 
that this was a hard saying. In John 6 verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And as a result, they made a choice like Orpah, not to abide in Christ. In fact, in John 6 verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Or shall we say that they had forsaken their first love? Then Jesus looks at the twelve and he asks them the question that he may be asking us even this morning. In light of the many disciples who have gone back and walked with him no more, do you also want to go away? Dear friends, I pray that our persuasion is similar to that of Peter, who was emphatic in his response, because in his response we find a resolve to abide in Christ. In verse 68 and 69, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, literally, age-lasting life. Also, we have come to believe and to know and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I wonder whether Peter was in any way saying that what they had heard was an easy saying. I doubt it. But you know, it did not matter whether it was heard at that time or not. His was a resolve that was shared by the rest of the disciples. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I wonder whether we have come to that same place of having that same persuasion. Difficult at some times, it might be as we continue with this rest of the faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? And by inviting us to abide in him, Christ demonstrates that there exists a possibility for us to abide in something or someone else. In other words, if we are not abiding in Christ, dear friends, automatically, we are abiding in another. Because there is no middle ground. And maybe that is why God would give us the type of Orpah and Ruth. There was no third example. It is because we are either going back or we are going on. And Jesus, speaking in John 12, verse 46, tells his disciples and us this morning, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. I pray that we shall be persuaded to abide in the light, in Christ, in his word, even as we continue to organize our lives according to what he has said. That peradventure, if in the course of this race we stumble, that we will go to him and that he will cleanse us and thereby continue to run. Let us not give up, dear friends. We are almost there. May the Lord grace us. And I'm sure we know this type. In Genesis 13, speaking of Abram and Lot, and after that strife that was there, a decision had to be made for a separation to be made between Abram and Lot. And we know that Lot, based on what he saw, he chose Sodom. And verse 12 of Genesis 13 tells us, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt 
in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And the Hebrew word for dwelt is the same word for abide. Where have we chosen to dwell? Let me read the words of Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3, and then we pray and come to the end of our lesson. Psalm 1, verse 1 to 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. May that be true of us. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you and we bless you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've given us. The Lord, we have converged this morning, remind, being reminded of your word in Hebrews 10, that, Lord, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we thank you that you have graced us to be here. We bless you, dear Father, because the object of our gathering is your word. And we thank you, God, for your word, even as you have continued to navigate us through from the various passages that we have seen. Like the disciples, Lord, our desire is that you may abide with us. And therefore, Lord, I pray that as we continue with our pilgrim journey on this very same race, on the same track, dear Lord, the narrow path, the Lord, you shall abide with us, that you shall remain with us, that you shall continue to open the scriptures to us. But Lord, you have also invited us to abide in you. And therefore, God, we ask you to help us that the adjustments that, Lord, we need to make, that we shall appropriate your grace to make them. That we shall be the blessed man that is described for us as one who chooses not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I pray that, Lord, we shall be among those, dear Father, who are blessed because of the choice to delight, to abide in the law of the Lord, that we shall meditate on it day and night, being careful to do what you have told us to do. So, Father, we thank you and we bless you, Lord. We pray that, Lord, we shall exercise that barren spirit to go back to this very same lesson, dear God, and glean the truths that are herein. And the Lord, as we do so, that we shall come to a good understanding of it, motivated by the desire that, Lord, when we stand before you, that we shall hear those wonderful words of accolades. Well done, good and faithful servant. We thank you and we bless you because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.